You're listening to Below the Line, picking apart the polls, the party spin and the policies. We are working on a telephone voting option, which will be a first. If you wake up on the day and you subject to a health order on the day, it is absolutely going to be an emergency measure. And you can imagine if not handled correctly, Patricia, if we have to read out, you know, the Senate ballot paper for people in telephone voting, it's going to take some time. From polls to party spin to policies, Below the Line is a 2022 election limited edition broadcast breaking free of party, media and populist lines. It's brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation website. I'm John Fain. I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne. Joining me are political scientists Annika Goya from the University of Sydney, Simon Jackman from the University of Sydney and Andrea Carson. Associate Professor from La Trobe University, and together we're going to try to cut through the election noise. Now, perhaps to their displeasure, I'm going to dub our three experts as professors of polls, parties, and press. And I hope each of you embrace that shortcut to infamy. And thank you very much for joining us, each of you, Simon Annika and Andrea. The big news this morning George Christensen, formerly a Liberal National Party. Maverick, he's always described as Member of Parliament from Northern Queensland, the member for Dawson for about a dozen years now, has announced that he's defecting to Pauline Hanson's One Nation Party after having previously said he was quitting politics altogether. Annika, take us through, first of all, how significant a move do you think this is and does it guarantee, with his personal following up there, that he ends up perhaps having enormous influence, even the balance of power in the future Parliament? Well, I think it's certainly a, a win for One Nation. They obviously get a very high-profile candidate um, contesting a seat for them that they probably wouldn't otherwise have won. So I think uh, One Nation is going to do very, very well out of it. Uh, look, you're right that George Christensen has a very significant personal following as well. So I think that there is a good chance that he will be um, re-elected under the, the One Nation label. And there's going to be you know, a lot of personalities perhaps to deal with both in Parliament but also in the party. This is actually quite a, a, a sort of a typical thing for a, a minor party to do, to pull in a high-profile candidate, gets them out of uh, dilemmas they have around lack of resources, but it also in the longer term um, leads to more dysfunction within the political party. So it's going to be a, a turbulent few, year, few years ahead if Christensen is re-elected. Carso, it looks like Pauline Hanson's turning into the most successful oxygen thief so far in these early days of this election campaign. How's she doing it? She's a bit of a master at using social media, John. If you have a look at the way that she uses, and this has been the case for some time, it's not a recent phenomenon for her. She uses Facebook very well and she can afford to because she's not a mainstream party. So she can afford to interact and have a dialogue with her followers. And she has a large number of followers, over 100,000. And they feel like she's speaking to them. She's not using it as a broadcast medium, which um, the mainstream parties still tend to do. And that's what the way that it's been used with the mainstream media. Digital media offers something different, and that's to be able to have a conversation with your constituents, and they love it. So at the moment, she's tracking better in terms of reach than Scott Morrison is. Um, and given she's a minor party, that's quite something. 
Uh, dare I suggest that people in the mainstream media and commentators like yourselves, and I include myself in this condemnation, we tend to dismiss Pauline Hanson as a bit of an accident of Australian politics, but quite clearly we're seeing there's a far more strategic approach from her team than her persona suggests. So how deep do they bat? She's announced she's standing candidates in every seat around Australia, most of which will have no prospect whatsoever. How genuine a force is she building? Simon, let's start with you. Um, one of the things about Australian politics, compulsory voting um, is manna from heaven for um, outsiders like uh, Pauline Hanson. Um, there's a steady supply of voters who at pain of fine have to present themselves to a polling place and go through the process. Hanson harvests those votes exceptionally well. People that are um, disgusted in some cases um, hold the major parties and the system in contempt. Um, Hanson voters are some of the most populist we see in uh, surveys of the Australian electorate. And by that, I mean a, a disgruntlement, to put it mildly, with politics as usual, that the major uh, parties are not addressing the questions of, of, of major concern to them. Hanson has been picking off those votes and she's been systematically being underestimated as a force in Australian politics since 1996. This has been going on now for an awful long time. John, you're right on the, it getting more strategic and I think uh, hitching someone like Christensen to the one Hanson brand um, uh, is, is indicative, I think, of that more um, careful and considered uh, forays into, into what are the really uh, hard to win um, uh, offices in Australian politics. All right, from Professor Polls to Professor Parties, Annika, how genuine then, given this is a three-way contest, I mean, is Hanson just cannibalising Palmer's potential base. And in terms of the Senate, there's also Campbell Newman in Queensland in this three-way tussle. Yeah, yeah, quite possibly. I mean, all of these parties occupy a reasonably similar space in Australian politics, and that's the sort of space that they're outside of the, the major party groupings. The difference between them is obviously that the, the figureheads that they've got uh, running in those particular seats and states. Um, I just wanted to, I mean, go back a little bit. It's very early days in the campaign at the moment now, and this sort of strategic um, I want to call it a strategic appearance that One Nation is putting on because I think that it won't be long and I'm making this assertion based on what has happened in previous election campaigns that some of the wheels start falling off the One Nation campaign machine. Yes, they're very good at um, social media, but they have had perennial problems with rogue candidates. They have problems filling seats. Um, candidates become disgruntled with the political party machine itself. So I think that organisational aspect of One Nation is its greatest vulnerability and that might change the sort of strategic approach during the campaign. All right, enough of Pauline Hanson and George Christensen. Let's move on. And we want to get to our main topic for today. We haven't got there yet, but we're going to, which is about the lag effect and whether we're importing. We're seeing evidence of importing strategies from other political markets, other countries. And we'll come to that in a moment. But just quickly, the big issue in the first flush of excitement after the... Um, 
the breathless reportage of the Prime Minister's plane is taking off from Sydney, the Prime Minister's plane is in the air, the Prime Minister's plane is landing in Canberra, the Prime Minister's plane is taxiing on the tarmac, the Prime Minister's plane is pulling up near, oh, someone's walking, oh, it's the Prime Minister walking down. I couldn't believe it. It just was infuriating. Let's leave that alone. Um, Albo's, Albo's gaff. Albo's gaff not knowing the, um, the the Reserve Bank's bottom line interest rate, not knowing the exact unemployment rate. John Howard says it's irrelevant, but let's start with you, Carso, Professor Press. Are people still going to be talking about this by the time we start voting in the first week of May? I think they could be because it speaks to a really broad narrative. Um, and we talked about issue ownership in one of the earlier podcasts, and that is the main message that the coalition's running on is that you can't trust Labor with the economy. And Elbow fed straight into that by not knowing one of the key indicators of the economy, and that is the employment or unemployment rate. And it spoke to uh, all the, I guess, the scare messages that are coming out from the coalition that stay the course is what they're saying, we're the economic managers, you don't know what you're getting with Elbow, and then he showed the electorate with that um, fumbling that he wasn't across the detail, and I think that would unnerve some people. So does that become the first hit ad? You just play that over and over again, and the Liberal Party exploit that in exactly the same way as the Labor Party have been exploiting. You know, you don't hold a hose, or um, you know, you can't trust Scott Morrison. I don't think I know that sort of stuff. Yeah, and it's not just that, John. It's also it drowns out all the other messaging he's trying to get through. Every time he goes to speak about aged care or I'm going to give you integrity and I'm going to be a leader that you can rely on, he doesn't get that message out. He's there defending why he didn't know about those economic uh, markers and there's more of those to come out. So I think you'll find next week when the Reserve Bank releases its latest figures, he'll be right across them, but it might be a little bit too late. All right. Do either of professors, polls, or parties want to buy in on that very quickly before we move on? No? Yeah. Look, I Sorry. thought I thought it, I thought it was a disaster, just an unmitigated disaster. Stumbles out of the blocks on the first morning of the campaign, the first press event, bang. And not not only that, it's not that he didn't know the number. The number has special significance in the context of this campaign. The coalition is running on its economic stewardship. Frydenberg is out there talking about 4% record low unemployment, and, and the leader of the opposition doesn't know the number, and it just feeds into this narrative, as, as Andrea was saying. I thought, you know, it could well end up being, I'm not quite sure it's the Mark Latham handshake moment outside um, the ABC studios there in Sydney with John Howard, and, and, and if anything, the good news for Labor is that there's a long way till election date uh, for other things to get into voters' heads between now and then. But but my, oh, my. Um, the other thing is he, he can't make another mistake. He may get forgiven for one like that. But boy, oh, boy, the pressure on the campaign. And I wonder if that'll affect campaigning style for Labor uh, going forward. Not just style, um, Professor Parties, Annika. It affects morale, recruiting, volunteers' commitment to feeling their campaigning for a noble cause, it's got many subtle effects too, does it not? Yeah, it, it does. But I think it affects the voters, the swinging voters, obviously, the most. The party campaigners are a very specific lot of people. Uh, they really are the diehards that will get out there, there no matter no matter what. But it's going to be a very long six weeks. I mean, the electorate is pretty tired. We've all gone through 
COVID, we've got an international war. Um, and, you know, if the Liberal Party, which I think they will, exploit this gaffe and use it, as Andrea said, in their advertising and their messaging, there may also well come a point when voters are just either immune to it or downright sick of hearing it. So I think parties also need to be careful in how they moderate that negativity throughout the campaign because we are in for a marathon. Oh, undoubtedly. And, you know, Scott Morrison's counting on it being what more energetic and, and uh, more agile and being able to exploit what he perceives to be a weakness. But let's not get onto that. We'll get onto that later on in our series as we also stagger towards the finish line. I want to talk about whether or not we import strategies from other markets, other political markets, given that there are people for whom this is an industry and a business. And are we seeing evidence of some of the techniques used, whether it was in Brexit or in the UK or in continental Europe or the United States or even Canada's recent elections here in Australia? Now, Simon, you used to be with the US Studies Centre. This is your area. So, uh, Professor Poles, take us through it. What are we seeing so far? Oh, look, certainly um, the use of social media is is obviously, um, you know, they are American companies um, and the American parties are constantly innovating in that direction. And John, because they don't have compulsory voting over there and because the parties are weaker, it's a huge and deep and dynamic and extremely innovative industry. And it's a big industry in the United States. Everyone from sheriff up through president of the United States has to have a campaign and all the infrastructure that goes with, with far less assistance from central office than um, candidates and, and um, parties, um, uh, state and local party organizations get uh, from head office in Australia. So um, techniques of polling in particular, techniques of voter mobilization that actually are, are sometimes a little misplaced in the Australian context. Turnout is typically is only on the margin an issue in Australian politics. It's conversion and appealing to the undecideds in the middle, who you know are, are almost ninety percent of them are going to vote. It's it's getting them to vote for you, and it's that message testing part of the American campaigning uh, machinery uh, that we import. The other thing to point out is that there are strong institutional ties to uh, John between industry players. Um, all the campaign professionals um, pay close attention to what their counterparts on their respective side of politics are doing in the United States, but also the UK. And I'd point out that uh, Crosby Texter, the consultancy used by um, you know the, uh, the coalition for for cycle, many cycles now, you know, is also the the consultancy that advises um, the conservative campaigns, and indeed on the back of their success in the UK. Uh, uh, Linton Crosby has become Sir Linton Crosby uh, and, um, and just speaks to the uh, success, frankly, that Crosby Texter has had in another English-speaking democracy, um, the United Kingdom. What are his personal connections to the firm that he founded? Mark Texter has moved on. Um, is Crosby still involved in what used to be called Crosby Texter, now called the yeah, yes. Consultancies, uh, I think. Yeah, Linton is, and 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 Mark is playing less of a day-to-day uh, -day role. Certainly, is my understanding of 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 how Crosby Texter is configured uh, in Australia uh, these days. Um, the other thing to point out is um, that the principal private secretary of of of, of the Prime Minister is a former, um, you know, the Australian uh, CEO of of Crosby Texter, Ron Finkelstein. Yeah. Um, so there's this the ties historically. Are very, 
tightly meshed in together. So yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah. Professor Party's Zanica, So how how is this playing out and on the Labor side as well? Because there's obviously strong historic connections with the trade union movement, but also with people who graduate at through there, uh, finishing schools in the same way as the IPA and Crosby Texter are finishing school for Liberal politicians. Labor Party has the same as well. What are we going to see? Do you think on the other side then on the on the Labor Party side? Yeah, well, there's certainly the same sort of actual connections between people that Simon mentioned in the context of those uh, strategic firms. Uh, Labor Party activists send their lot over to work on the campaigns um, of the Democrats in the US and also the Labor Party in the UK, and that's happened for, for many years. So there is a process of training and learning campaign techniques that happens. The way, main way at which it plays out, I think, within the Labor Party is a uh, as Simon mentioned, compulsory voting makes our parties lazy in this respect. They don't need to motivate to motivate voters to mobilise them and to innovate to the same degree as their overseas counterparts and as high rates of public funding for election campaigns comparatively also support this too. So beyond them being pretty lazy um, and I think quite lagging in sort of cutting-edge campaign techniques, Labor, the way this plays out in Labor is a concerted effort on social media, I'm sure Andrea will speak more about this, but also interplaying that with that grassroots door-knocking campaigns in target seats. And it's that seat targeting that they have very much learnt, that community organising, grassroots door-knocking work from both the US Democrats and the UK Labor Party. So let's pick up with Professor Prescasso. The, the, there's a lag effect, as both Simon and Annika have told us, and the lag effect not only impacts on the parties, it impacts on the media as well. So take us through how that's working. Well, I always think there's a two-term um, gap between what's going on in the US and what ends up in Australia. And as Simon and Annika have pointed out, there's a lot of deep connections between Australian operatives going over to the US and to the UK, and they swap around, and sometimes they swap around between parties as well. But does the media do the same thing? Do we send Australian journalists No, we don't. I, I think we're quite a bit behind the actual um, candidates and the political parties, and that's why we saw this reporting that is a template report of uh, filming the plane, watching the car drive down the avenue, seeing the Prime Minister get out, go to the Governor-General. We could have seen that in the 1990s. The other thing is the campaign has changed in its dynamic because of early voting. A third of the uh, of Australians went to the polls early, which means the campaign messages by the parties needs to really get out in those first four weeks so that they capture the whole of the electorate and they're not missing people. There's no point like in the old days where they used to do their campaign launches in the last week to really get that hit and they go negative really hard in the last week. Parties can't afford to do that anymore. They need to get out on the front foot right from the beginning to capture every single voter because if they're only getting two-thirds after early polling opens, then that may be the difference between a win and a loss. And I'm not sure the mainstream media has necessarily caught up with this because of the type of template coverage that we're getting, which is very old-fashioned. The other thing I will add is that it's hard for the media to get a sense of the holisticness of what's going on on digital media. It's so fragmented. It's spread across Instagram, Facebook, now TikTok, uh, a, a little bit on Google, lots on YouTube, to get a real sense of who's winning and losing in those spaces and who's getting the most traction is hard to get a read on. Um, 
So there's a lot of different dynamics going on in this modern environment. Okay, and there's a bit of a game, let's not pretend. I mean, the the, the main parties are trying to capture the media and they, they have journalists embedded on their campaigns and they try and they, they hand feed them, they do all sorts of things to try and win them over to charm them and to colonise, basically, the main media outlets in the mainstream. But I suspect now with a more disaggregated media coverage and social media playing a greater role, that's not as powerful at all as it used to be. Am I right or wrong? Well, look at 2007 when Kevin Rudd won. The News Corp outlets, which have you know a big readership across the country, and they still do, they ran a lot of negative front page stories, um, but that didn't affect the overall outcome of that election. So we've got to be careful not to overestimate the impact of mainstream newspapers. Having said that, you only had to look after that gaffe by elbow. The News Corp papers systematically across the country had very negative front page stories. Well, so they should have too. It was a shocking thing, as Professor Simon has already said. It was, was unbelievable. You looked at it and went, and you want to run the country? You're kidding? That's right. So, I mean, this gets into a whole area of theory on media effects. It's very hard to know how much impact uh, media coverage has on how people actually vote. It just tells us what to think about rather than what how to think about it. All right. We're nearly out of time and we've got to touch on one more thing, which is that the Australian Electoral Commission have announced that they're going to use telephone voting for people who are COVID impacted and can't get to the polls and haven't pre-poll voted or postal voted. How do you run through a Senate ticket with someone over the phone? I mean, you know, they're about a metre long in paper. How does this possibly... I mean, it's almost like it's begging to be done as a Sean McAuliffe skit, isn't it? This is just preposterous. <laughs> I mean, take us through it first, Annika. How do you think physically and how do the parties prepare for this sort of stuff? Oh, look, this is unprecedented territory. <laughs> I really struggle to see how this is going to be to be workable um, unless, you know, the, well, we know the large majority of voters are those that don't vote below the line. Um, uh, but really sitting there with a hundred plus names, all you can do is is read it out and, and tally it up. Um, oh, what was number 72 again? Sorry. Can you just go back a little wait, bit? Wait, hang oh, on. Yeah, no, number 15. I got that. Well, you can imagine it. It's just absurd, isn't it? But hang on a minute. We all love below the line, don't we? <laughs> oh. Oh, we're going to cause some problems for the AEC. Yeah, we have. Simon, do you think it's workable? Look, I don't know. Um, it's a really surprising move, John, because the AEC, particularly under this current commissioner, is noted for its caution and its conservatism. There's been no rush to internet voting. Um, there's been a very steady-as-she-goes approach. That said, I think um, the AEC's social media account has gotten all very happy and pally and chummy in a very disconcerting way, frankly. Um, and, 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 um, and the other one is they've really put a big emphasis on election integrity. Those have been um, the, the, the hallmarks of, 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 of Commissioner Rogers' uh, term. Yep. So, so for a bold step like phone voting, um, and and again, just trying to as we sit here trying to imagine, um, wh- where's the small scale test of this? Where's the evidence to suggest this works? Now, maybe it's there, and maybe they've done their homework, but it's something I'm going to be certainly taking a deep dive on um, between now and um, and election day to see exactly how this rather 
novel innovation in Australian electoral politics is actually going to be delivered. There is a tension, however, that we should point out, and I think this comes through in the opening remarks of the podcast by Tom Roger, and that is that they have to deal with the COVID situation, that if someone wakes up on the day of the election and they've got COVID, then are they denied a vote? No, and they're that not goes denied a vote. You get a medical exemption. I mean, if you, if you get run over by a bus on the way to the polling booth, you don't vote. Yeah, but, What's the difference? Well, the difference, John, is, is between um, meeting the obligation that the state puts on you to vote and then, but actually having your preferences counted. Well, and I think that's what Andrea's getting at. Um, I think it just leads to an explosion in people pre-poll voting. John, there might be more people getting COVID than being run over by buses at this oh, election. Even tens of thousands of them if you're going on the New South Wales surge at the moment. But look, this is now we're entering into the realms of not just political speculation, but even epidemiological speculation. And of course, <laughs> that's way outside the brief. That's not just below the line, that's outside the line. So we've run out of time. I think we're all looking forward to having a break over Easter, but how about we all convene again after the Easter break and see where things have gone. And by the way, just very quickly, everyone's saying, oh, the parties have called a truce over Easter. I do not believe it for one second. And if any of the major players are lulled into a false sense of security by that, they will do so at their peril. I make that prediction. Uh, Look, it's wonderful to have you all back on as we start to kind of, you know, rev up and the temperature rises. Below the Line is presented by me, John Fain. I'm a Vice-Chancellor's Fellow at the University of Melbourne, Professors Annika Gallier and Simon Jackman at the University of Sydney, Dr Andrea Carson at La Trobe University, Producers Courtney Carthy and Wes Mountain. We look forward to speaking to you again after Easter. Below the Line, the Federal Election 2022, brought to you by La Trobe University with The Conversation. To get more information or to get in contact, please see the episode notes. Mr Howard called me to offer his congratulations. The people have spoken, but it's going to take a little while to determine exactly what they've said. You obviously enjoyed hearing it, so let me say it again. The Government of Australia has changed. We have every confidence that we will form a coalition majority government. I have always believed in miracles. Yeah.